This is The Space Shot, episode 17, for May 31st, 2017. Skylab and the Kibo module. Hey everyone, welcome to The Space Shot, your daily space history, pop culture, and news fix. I'm John Molnix. There's a few things I want to talk about today. On this day in 2008, the Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off from Launch Complex 39A, carrying a crew of seven astronauts and components of the Japanese experiment module, or Kibo, to the International Space Station. The pressurized module of Kibo is the biggest ISS module and was delivered during Discovery's STS-124 mission. The other components of the Kibo are the exposed facility, the experiment logistics module, and those are both pressurized and unpressurized sections, and the remote manipulator system. The Kibo module has experiments that measure everything from cell biology to the study of gas molecules in Earth's atmosphere. Scientists are also researching X-ray astronomy on board the module, and in a few days the NICER, or Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer, NICER will arrive at the International Space Station as part of the CRS-11 mission, which is scheduled to launch tomorrow at 4.55 p.m. Central Time. Tomorrow's launch will be the 100th from Pad 39A, and the 6th that SpaceX has launched from this historic pad. Tomorrow's launch is also important because it marks the first time that SpaceX will be able to reuse a Dragon capsule. Up until the launch of CRS-11, the only two countries that have been able to reuse spacecraft in some way, shape, or form have been the United States and Russia. One of the great things about the International Space Station is the ability to add missions like NICER to modules that are already part of the station. These missions can be either short-term or long-term, depending on the needs of the study. NICER is also part of an experiment that's testing a new type of communication system that could be useful for deep space missions throughout the solar system. Scientists are trying to figure out a way to encode data in X-ray bursts, which would allow for gigabit bandwidth capabilities throughout the solar system, compared to the dial-up speeds to a few megabit speeds that NASA currently uses. The bandwidth improvements are going to be, wait for it, astronomical. Be sure to download tomorrow's episode for more information about SpaceX, the Dragon Capsule, and CRS-11. And now I want to get back to Skylab. Yesterday we left the crew after the fix for the Sun and Meteoroid Shield had been developed. Here's some audio from when the crew of Skylab 2 rendezvoused with the station and saw the damage to Skylab for the first time. TV picture beginning to come in now to the control center. Skylab Houston, we're AOS at Guam for the next 10 minutes. Callie, oh, the Skylab. We got her in daylight at 1.5 miles, 29 feet per second. Roger, Pete, copy. They effected rendezvous and performed a fly-around to assess the damage. Most predictions were confirmed. Okay, Houston, the meteoroid shield area is solid gold. Roger, copy. In brief description, it is suspected solar wing one, two, right? is gone, completely off the bird. Solar wing one is in fact partially deployed and the reason that you've got different readings, not symmetric between your three solar panels is there's a bulge of meteorite shield underneath it in the middle and it looks to be holding it down. I Roger, copy. Okay, Houston, it looks like the meteorite shield at the upper vent panel on the sand wing has wrapped around it just slightly. Where are we? Now, my guess is 
that our easiest thing to do is just go to the end and try and deploy it. Roger. Uh on June 7th, we'll go back to Skylab because that's when the astronauts on Skylab 2 actually went out to fix the broken solar panel. But before I finish talking about Skylab today, here's an excerpt from Homesteading Space, the Skylab story. Of course, modifying a tool for spaceflight and actually being able to fly it are two different things. They had to get that through the stress test and everything else, Lewis said. And how it usually goes is it takes forever. Well, in this case, what they had done was to set up stations just like college registration. Station one, there was a desk out front of the office, and somebody would be there with a rubber stamp. Put your drawing down, stamp it, take it over to the station two, stamp it, and of course, while all of this was going on, we still had managers going through saying, what can we do to help? What do you need? Money? So we had a lot of support. That support wasn't just limited to people within NASA either, as Steve Marks, who was working at the time as a NASA aerospace education specialist, recalls. Marks was involved in an effort to explore the untapped potential of television for NASA education and was driving some equipment for that project to Marshall. Driving late at night, he was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. However, when the officer saw the NASA logo on the van, Marks explained that he was delivering equipment to Marshall, and the officer promptly sent him on his way, without a ticket. On tomorrow's episode, The Dream is Alive, I'll also be covering the SpaceX CRS-11 launch, and there's also going to be a little bit of pop culture in tomorrow's episode, so be sure to download episode 18 when it's out to find out what I'm talking about. I'm grateful that you've taken the time to listen to the show. It would mean a lot if you could leave a review on iTunes and on Google Play Music. If you know someone that loves space history, history, or pop culture, please share the Space Shot on Facebook, Insta, Twitter, anywhere that you connect with your friends and family. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side. <laughs>